Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. It's my great honour now to introduce to you my next fascinating guest about whom it's been written. If there's an ignored conflict in the world, particularly one in which Christians are facing persecution, you can bet this 75-year-old will be there. And she's nodding. Baroness Caroline Cox was made a life peer in the British House of Lords 30 years ago. She's a former Deputy Speaker of the Lords, a champion of human rights, who's also been described as a British Joan of Arc for our times. She is fearless in her work, even under fire, in war zones. For instance, in Sudan, she undertook numbers of trips there during which she rescued more than 2,000 slaves by paying around $200,000 raised by evangelical Christian church groups. She's in Australia to promote the work of Heart Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, which she founded. Lady Cox, welcome to Open House. Thank you for having me. It is a great privilege to meet you. Thank you so much for sparing the time for us. What is it that's driven you in it all, especially to go to those ignored conflicts of the world where everyone else forgets about them? Well, first of all, I'm not fearless. I am very often afraid. <laughs> yes. Sometimes before one goes into one of those conflict zones, you shrink, and I get what I call my fit of faithless, fearful dread. And do I really want to go? And I remember once I had a fit of faithless, fearful dread on a Saturday afternoon. Don't talk about it. There's no point in sharing gloom and doom. But when I went to church the next morning, the gospel reading was that passage He who is not prepared to leave husband, wife, brothers, sisters for my sake is not worthy to be my disciple. And there was a bit after that I'd never noticed before, but I think it was there that day. But he who does leave husband, wife, brothers and sisters for my sake will find new brothers and sisters even under persecution. And it's so true. And, you know, when you do go beyond your frontier of fear to those front lines of faith and freedom, you meet the most wonderful people and you come back receiving more than you can ever, ever give. So clearly it's been that faith that's driven you in all this. Well, it must be. Uh, we have that biblical mandate to heal the sick, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, speak for the oppressed. And as you rightly mentioned, I'm 75, so maybe I've got less of natural life left to lose than others. <laughs> so I've got no excuse for not going. In the rarefied atmosphere in the House of Lords, it clearly hasn't been something that's detached you from the cold, hard, raw realities of life. But there is a great gap between those two worlds, which you inhabit. Yes, there is. But that's a huge privilege to be appointed to the House of Lords is an enormous privilege. I wasn't into politics. I always say I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention, a baroness by astonishment. And I was so much not in the political world, I was the first baroness I'd ever met. Never met one before. (laughs) Wake up and find yourself as a baroness looking at yourself out of the bathroom mirror. But you think, how can I use this privilege? And that is to be a voice for the voiceless. So it is a great privilege to be able to speak in the House of Lords for those who cannot speak for themselves. But as you rightly say, there are worlds apart. And sometimes it's quite difficult making that transition. You come in maybe from the jungles of Burma or from the killing fields of South Sudan or the little Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh that no one's ever heard of, which is part of ancient Armenia, Christian Armenia, that Stalin stuck inside Azerbaijan and the Armenians there suffered attempted genocide by Azerbaijan. And you come back from those raw, horrible situations A, to the comfort zones, but B, very often to a political arena and media very often who do not really care, who don't really want to know. And that can be the double twist of the knife. With the people who are suffering the pain, you come back maybe to governments who could make a difference. And sometimes for reasons of interest or different political agendas, uh, they don't make the difference, which one would passionately hope they would. And so it's a double agony. Your appointment as Baroness came thanks to Margaret Thatcher. Why do you think you were made a baroness? 
cut a long story extremely short. Um, after nursing, I then had TB, uh, best nursing education anyone can have, six months as a patient, yes, yes. not yet at clinical nursing, went in the academic world, found myself as head of a department of social sciences in the heady days of the 1970s, and of an academic staff or faculty of 2016, a Communist Party or further left. Their definition of higher education was not mine. Mine is freedom to pursue the truth within the canons of academic rigour. Theirs was hardline indoctrination, academic blackmail, physical violence. And it was a tough, tough battle, which I fought for nine years, eventually with two colleagues not from the social sciences department, but from the sane worlds of maths and physics. But we wrote a book because we knew it wasn't only happening in the Polytechnic of North London, where I was at that time, but in the kind of soft underbelly of higher education throughout much of the United Kingdom. It was called the uncompromising title, The Rape of Reason, The Corruption of the Polytechnic of North London. You don't write and run, you go back and face the music. I was a bit scared. But the day before the book was due to be published, then a very famous um, commentator in the London Times, Bernard Levin, had three articles a week. He phoned me up and was getting kids ready for school and said, I've just read your book. I think it's the most important book for the future of democracy. I've read for 10 years. I'm going to cover it in tomorrow's Times. It was a lifesaver. The strap line at the top, in all its brutality, the making of an intellectual concentration camp. And at the end, he said, I think this is such an important book. I will devote my remaining two articles this week to discussing it. So he gave us a trilogy, which he'd only have done before for Mozart and Solzhenitsyn, so we were in good company. Yes, that got indeed. the book known, that got me known, and I think that's why Maggie Thatcher gave me a seat in the House of Lords as a kind of academic freedom fighter. Yes. The point needs to be made that you've not come to your title nor your position in Britain or the world from a family of privilege. This is not an inherited thing. Certainly not. It's appointed. I was the first baroness I'd ever met. Still haven't quite recovered from the shock. (laughs) But privilege brings responsibility. Yes. As I said, you're here in Australia as part of your work with HEART, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, which you founded, particularly in Burma and East Timor, both of which are very close to home for us. What's the range of work that you do for HEART? Well, I could say close home for you, uh, East Timor, Timor-Leste. May I say, whenever we work in Timor-Leste, uh, the people there love Australians. Yes, they will yes. never forget the help you gave, the way you stood by them in their very difficult days. So yes. we have a program for malnutrition in Timor-Leste, several programs in Burma. I won't call it Myanmar because the local people hate that. And then moving west, I'm just back from India, where we're working with Operation Mercy India, trying to help girls and women who've been consigned as what are called Devadazi to horrible lives as temple prostitutes or forced prostitution and then moving further west again the little Armenian enclave on Nagorno-Karabakh we have a rehabilitation centre there now which is spreading hope and healing throughout the whole of the South Caucasus and then across to Africa northern Nigeria so many martyrs already this year in northern Nigeria South Sudan and the Republic of Sudan again horrendous humanitarian catastrophe and northern Uganda Of all the vast needs of the world, why do you go to these places? How and why do you choose them? Well, I found it hard, really, I think, to fill a gap. There are very good aid organisations out there. I helped to found Merlin, which is now a world player. There are advocacy organisations like Amnesty International, Secular, Christian Solidarity Worldwide for Christians. Both are important, but people whom I really felt a passion for uh, helping were the people suffering oppression and persecution who were 
often not served by major aid and advocacy organisations, often trapped behind closed borders. And that happens because the big aid organisations, the names we'd all know, like UN, Save the Children, Red Cross, can only go places with the permission of a sovereign government. If a sovereign government denies access, then they can't reach the victims of a sovereign government that is oppressing its minorities, so they're left unreached, unhelped, unheard. So you spend quite a lot of our time crossing borders illegally and completely shamelessly. You're comfortable with that? I think it's a moral imperative uh, for Christians um, to be with the most lost, last and least. Obviously, we don't do it irresponsibly in the sense that uh, you don't do it just to be a deviant. But you do it to reach people trapped in the jungle. The people in the war against South Sudan, every month Khartoum would publish a list of airstrips which were open to UN Operation Lifeline Sudan and all the um, big aid organisations and they couldn't go because... Uh, or at least they could go to the open ones, but they couldn't go to the closed airstrips. And, of course, then um, the North would carry out its military offensives in the no-go areas when no one could take aid or tell the world what it was doing. And so we went 30 times those forbidden airstrips uh, to take aid to those denied aid, to be a voice for those denied a voice. And it wasn't universally welcomed by the anti-slave charities. No, when we um, rescued all those women and children from slavery, I mean, I didn't do it on my own. No, 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 no. I did as part of in those days with Christian Solidarity International, Christian Solidarity Worldwide. Um, but uh, we were blamed uh, for encouraging the slave trade. And I think that was a complete misunderstanding of the situation and they had to put the record straight. Um This was not economic slavery. This was slavery as a weapon of war, slavery as a weapon of military Islamic jihad, military Islamic holy war. And we were told by the Arab traders who used to come south to graze their cattle in the dry season and trade, and who were friends of the African Dinka people and didn't like what was happening, that the regime from Khartoum sent down emissaries to the borderlands, rounded up the nomadic tribesmen, gave them horses and Kalashnikovs and told them they had a duty to go and attack the Christians and take... They couldn't um, give them, as it were, um, remuneration, but they could keep the bounty of war, including the human bounty, and that was perfectly legitimate in jihad. So this was slavery. It was a weapon of jihad. No amount of rescuing them was going to encourage more slavery. It was happening. It was rampant, and it was not economic slavery, so rescuing slavery wasn't going to encourage it. And I do believe it have a moral mandate to set the captive free. But incredibly dangerous work. A little bit, yes. It was there <laughs> the slave raids were going on. Yes. And, uh, you know, we, we were, uh, once I was in a village and we were there that night and a messenger came to the local tribal chief uh, saying uh, in Arabic, Salaam Alaikum, and then it said we were a crowd of, uh, or a force of 2,000 strong government of Sudan soldiers, the Mujahideen, and then the Murahali and the tribesmen were coming at 3.30 in the morning, beware, and then it finished Masalama, signed by a general and a major of the government of Sudan army. I didn't sleep terribly well that night, but unfortunately for the neighbouring village, they diverted to Choka, the neighbouring village. In the morning, the casualties started coming in. And I'll never forget a brave man who tried to stop the raiders taking a boy as a slave. They shot him in the face at point-blank range with a Kalashnikov. All the bottom of his door was sheared away. Nothing we could do for that degree of trauma up there in the bush. We telephoned the Red Cross. We tried to get them to come in and do a casualty evacuation. They wouldn't. They couldn't. It was a no-go area. So we had to charter a plane for which we didn't have the money in order to rescue or take out those casualties to Kenya. Sad to say that man died four days later, I hope in less pain. But if we hadn't been there, those people would have had no aid, no help. 
That's why it's a moral imperative to be there to free the captive and to help the sick and the wounded. On Open House, we're with Baroness Caroline Cox. Caroline, you and you've given me permission to call you Caroline. Of course, it's my uh, Christian name. You mentioned before a passion for the persecuted church. In fact, over the last year, you've uh, written another book, The Very Stones Cry Out, Persecuted Church, Pain, Passion and Praise. What is your message to the church in the comfortable West about these people and these churches? That book was born in Orissa. Um, Christians may remember that some years ago, some Christians were attacked in Orissa in India by extremist fundamentalist Hindus. I may say that on the whole, it's not a major problem in India, but this was a, an aberrant but very tragic situation. And Hart was the first NGO to get them to take some help and to tell the world what was happening. And I was walking through the ruins of yet another church and the burnt bricks and charred wood and splintered glass and the destroyed Bibles. And I thought, I've done this too often. I walked through too many burnt, destroyed churches in Sudan, in Nigeria, in Indonesia, when Laska Jihad were there, in Sudan in the little Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. No other faith tradition in the world today has suffered such a systematic onslaught on its holy places as Christianity. And the phrase came, the very stones will cry out. And I thought, uh-uh, a book has just been born. Yes. Do I really want to write another book? And I thought, I've got to write that book. So my colleague, Ben Rogers, uh, we wrote that book, and it has 17 chapters documenting the situation for the persecuted church in 17 different countries. And the vast majority of them begin with a little story just to set the scene, a human story, then an overview of the persecution in that country, then finishes with an inspirational message from the church in that country. And I must say that as we wrote that book, it is so humbling. And we visited a lot of churches, of course, to take photographs and so on. And yes, the stones do cry out, but they cry out with worship. Uh, a church is destroyed, the building is destroyed, but the church lives, the church worships, the church grows under persecution, and very particularly the church loves. The message you get out is not one of hatred or retribution or retaliation, it's a message of reconciliation and love. So the message is, yes, the stones cry out, but the church lives, grows and loves. It's a very important message to get out. Elsewhere in the world, you have a dialogue underway even with North Korea, where has that come from and, and why? Well, it's all part of the bigger picture of advocacy. Yeah. Um, but this is actually in a parliamentary context. I go with my good friend, Lord Alton Liverpool, who's a leading Roman Catholic peer, and we felt we needed to engage, not to compromise, but to engage. North Korea is probably the world's most closed, sealed, totalitarian society. We know there's been a huge amount of Christian persecution because, of course, everyone is meant to worship the great leader. Yes. And Christians, by definition, will not worship a great leader of this world. So there has been an enormous amount of Christian persecution, martyrdoms, torture, imprisonment, prison camps. The catalogue is very serious, and we probably don't know all of it by any means. But David and I thought we ought to go. We applied for visas. To our amazement, we got the visas. And... You know, I think it's still illegal to take Bibles into North Korea, but we thought somehow being parliamentarians, they just might not uh, examine our luggage. So we took a lot of Bibles in Korea. We've been three times on that first visit. <laughs> Every time we had a meeting with ministers, it would stand up at the end and offer a Bible upside down and say, Your Excellency, this is a very important book in our parliamentary tradition back home in the United Kingdom. We begin every day, the House of Lords, House of Commons, with reading from this in, in, in our parliament. And we'd like to give a copy of this book to you as a sign of respect as a fellow parliamentarian. So we handed over the Bibles and we hoped the Holy Spirit could use them. And you got away with it. Well, we left Bibles all over the place yes. and the Holy Spirit, I think, it's can. Wonderful stuff. We do think it's important. One of our mottos is, 
it is better to build bridges than walls. We can all build walls. Uh, Bridges are important. You can use a bridge to cross over it to raise your concerns, to raise issues to do with human rights and religious freedom and religious persecution. But you can also hopefully open up a sealed society a little bit. And we're glad now that there are um, scholars who do come from North Korea to Britain, achieving scholars, uh, probably obviously um, the youngsters of the elite, but they come to the UK, they will see that life is not what they've been taught uh, since childhood with indoctrination. There are other students who come to study English language at English language colleges, and there are four British Council English language teachers in Pyongyang. There's now a Christian university in Pyongyang, Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. Open up, let a little bit of light in. Mm. The light shines in the darkness. It's great to know. You've been a prominent and sometimes controversial voice in the intersection of Islam and the West, how have you been reflecting on the recent violence across the world following the anti-Muhammad film and cartoon? I think it's deeply sad. I must emphasise that the vast majority of Muslims, I think, are very peaceable, law-abiding, culturally very hospitable people. So we need to make a distinction between the vast majority of the world's 1.2 billion Muslims and the militant extremists and those who may be, some of them, manipulated by the militant extremists. Of course, I don't um, welcome gratuitous uh, offensiveness. I think it's something not at all to be encouraged. And indeed, I regret it, um, particularly if it is a religious um, insult. But that having been said, um, freedom of speech is a fundamental freedom. Uh, Freedom of speech and to criticise is a fundamental freedom of our very special traditions of freedoms of speech and also the freedom actually to give offence, not to incite to religious hatred, but freedom to give offence is actually a very important fundamental freedom. And Christians are taking offence all the time. <laughs> People being offensive to Christians and indeed offensive and uh, Bibles have been spat on and destroyed. Um, but we do not respond with hatred, with violence or with killing. And I do think that is a disproportionate response. And I think it's one that actually doesn't do a credit to uh, the religion of Islam. How concerned are you about where this will go in the future? I'm very concerned. As I said, the vast majority of the world's Muslims are peaceable, gracious people. But one can see, I think, a growth of militant Islam or Islamism around the world. And I think that is escalating. And there have already been so many martyrdoms already in Nigeria this year. I mentioned that briefly. People are being killed. Uh, around the world and people of course have been killed in response to this offence that's been taken. This I think is very disturbing indeed because it's a response that does not fit with either, you know, clearly we have incurs in our country our fundamental traditions of freedom, democracy and tolerance and it's very important we protect those fundamental freedoms. People have died for those freedoms yes. and we've got to pass on that heritage of freedom undiminished to the younger generation. Of all those you've worked for and with, those forgotten by most of the rest of the world, is there one particular story that stands out that (laughs) keeps you fired up to press on? I'm sure there are myriad numbers of stories. One that stands out? Yes, there are so many. I'll just choose one. And in a way, it reflects a little bit of the theme what we've just been talking about. It was during the war 
um, against the peoples of South Sudan uh, by Khartoum. I mean, since then, that war has concluded with a comprehensive peace agreement and secession, and now there are two nations, as you know. But when the North was attacking the South, and in that war, see, two million perished, four million were displaced, and I was there 30 times in the no-go areas, walking through the killing fields. I remember landing at one of the little forbidden airstrips, and whenever we land at those little forbidden airstrips, coming in, you'd see smoke on the horizon, flames rising all around you from burning villages. Emaciated people come running up and saying, thank God you've come, we thought the world had forgotten us. Come footing, as they say in Sudan, and walk with us. And remember walking through mile upon mile of scorched earth, burnt villages, cattle corpses, human corpses, eventually finished at a little township, really not much bigger than a village, and that had been attacked about five days before we got there. You could still see the blood on the ground where people had been slaughtered. They tried to burn the church, but it was a brick church, so it refused to burn. But they chopped the cross off the top and they destroyed everything inside, the drums and the Bibles. And the pastor, uh, Santino, had been away when the attack took place on his village. He came back to find many of his people killed, his two brothers killed, his sister taken as a slave, all the food destroyed. He only had tamarind seeds left to give his sister's children. But his words, I will never forget, he said... You know, we Christians here in South Sudan are trying to hold a line against a militant Islamism that wants to move right through South Sudan and throughout the whole of Africa. The North, Khartoum, spends a million dollars a day on this war. We have nothing. And then, but we're trying to hold this front line of faith. But he said, no, we feel completely forgotten. You're the only Christians who have ever even visited us. In the words which really turned a knife in my heart, he said, doesn't the church want us anymore? Because I want to know that Santino and others like him on those front lines of faith and freedom today, whether it's in Nigeria, whether it's in Sudan, whether it's in Egypt, so many parts of the world, they must know we want them. Not only that we want them, that we cherish them. And we won't let the price they're paying for our faith be paid in vain. Is there one particular moment in all of this work that you've done that you would regard as one of the most satisfying moments? Yes, to keep it very brief, it's where aid and advocacy come together, where heart can come together. In northwest Burma, the Chin peoples, um, Christian peoples, have been occupied by Burmese soldiers for a long time. So they've suffered systematic oppression. But also, a little way back, uh, the bamboo areas of Chin state um, were afflicted by what they call the mortar famine. Fifty years regularly, the bamboo flowers. When the bamboo flowers, the rats come. The rats devour everything. Rangoon sent up a team of World Food Programme to Chin State, but they didn't go to the bamboo areas, so they came back and said no famine. We knew there was, so we took a team up to the India border. We got the evidence. We took a BBC journalist with us. She broadcast the evidence. World Food Programme had to change its tune and say, yes, there was a food shortage in Chin State. I was able then, in the House of Lords, um, to ask a question and the British government, and I was delighted the British government said, yes, they would give £600,000 for food relief for the peoples of Chin State, another £200,000 the next year. That, I think, was one of the most encouraging moments where, for the oppressed people, it's very, you know, there's nobody really working in those areas in Chin State, it was a hidden famine. Uh, we could be their voice, we could be their advocates, and advocacy turned into life-saving aid. Well, I'm sure in so many of those areas, the world is a much better place for your advocacy and your aid. As I said, you're here to promote the work of Heart Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust Australasia. What's the message you're trying to get through? 
message we're trying to get through is that there's so much Australians could do to support our work for the forgotten peoples in the forgotten lands. I've already said how much people at Timor-Leste love Australians. Yes. You were there with them, but so would all these other people. They are off the radar screen very largely, and they desperately need aid and advocacy. If anyone is interested, we'd love to hear from them. And the website is www.heart, that's H-A-R-T hyphen Australasia dot org. And I know my colleagues here in Australia and Australasia would love to hear from anyone who'd like to know more about what we do. They're great colleagues with a great heart, I can tell you. And we'll put those details up on our Open House Community Facebook page. Baroness Caroline Cox, it's been a great privilege and pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Open House. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.